This is the psalm that takes 149 psalms to unpack. Okay. Now, last this is the one. This is like the, the preface for all the psalms. In in a uh, well, according to God's hand, it was Reformation Sunday, so we had Psalm 46 last week. This is the one which is really sets the stage for all the psalms. Lays out for us how to know the blessing of the Lord. That's basically what it says. This is how you know the blessing of the Lord. It is found on. Is found in meditation on and delight in the law of the Lord. The blessing of the Lord flows out of these two actions. And they are an action of the will of each of us. Now, you don't have to meditate upon and, and know the delight of the Lord. You can try other things, but you won't know blessedness. Not the blessedness of the Lord. And we'll see this in a moment. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I will read Psalm 1 today. Heavenly Father, come upon us that we might know your word, and not just in our minds, but in our hearts, in our entire beings, that it would come and we would desire it more than life itself. Lord, open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit today, that your word might dwell within us in us richly. We ask in Christ's name, amen. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the path of the wicked will perish. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Very simple, very straightforward. Blessedness is found in meditation on and delight in the law of God. It flows out of these two actions. Now let's take a moment to kind of define this concept of, of blessedness. Um, my, my, my next door neighbor wins the lotto, $100 million. Is he blessed? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I get the news that two members of my family have a long and debilitating disease which will in all probability bankrupt us. Am I blessed? Oh. See, this, the part of the trouble is defining what real blessedness is. Now, it might seem that the $100 million on the lotto is, that's a blessing, right? And until you, maybe if you read the history of all those who have won those large amounts and what their lives have become, uh, a large majority of them have simply lost it all and their lives have gone uh, down the tubes. Uh, not to say that I'm longing for members of my family to have long-term debilitating diseases and to be bankrupt. And in that sense, only then can I know the blessings of the Lord. The trouble is defining, according to human terms, what is blessing over against the Lord's terms. What is blessing? And when and what does it take for us to know his blessing? Okay. So that's, that's one of the things we have to chew on here. Uh, the emphasis of Psalm 1 and the ensuing 149 psalms 
is that blessing comes from the Lord in whatever way he determines is right and suits his purposes. And it is for his people to grasp these things and to grasp this blessing through the meditation on and delight in his law. And in that process of doing so, we are more conformed to the image of his son. And it may take $100 million for Randy to be conformed to the image of his son, or it may take uh, bankruptcy and debilitating uh, disease. Personally, I, I like this option, okay? But I'm not the Lord. And whatever he brings into my life, it is my job as a believer to meditate upon and to, to delight in his law in his word so that I can understand even if this comes into my life this is the blessing of the Lord and how will he shape my life and determine these things is unknown to me but if I don't meditate upon his word if I don't delight in his law I will never grasp that this could be a blessing I will always look over here at the hundred million dollar lotto winner and think Lord why haven't you blessed me like that I always think that I'm apparently not a good enough steward with the money that he has entrusted me for he to give me $100 million. Now, now the fact that I don't play the lotto has nothing to do with it, okay? Um, you figure since if God is God and he wants me to win that, then somebody will mail me the ticket and I will, it will be the winning ticket. It's just a suggestion. I don't know what you all do with that, Okay. Okay. Let's look at this. This is a wisdom psalm. There is no real title to this psalm. Uh, it is, as I said, the preface of, of all the other psalms. Uh, Spurgeon says, It is the psalmist's delight and desire to teach us the way to blessedness and to warn us of the sure destruction of sinners. This, then, is the matter of the first psalm, which is looked upon as a preface for all the other psalms, making up one long divine sermon. One item to note for us is the structure of the psalm. I mentioned two weeks ago when we talked in the introduction about the psalms that we'll find things like parallelism in Hebrew poetry. And this Psalm 1 is a good example of that, for we will find things walk, stand, and sit, wicked, sinners, scoffers, counsel, path, and seat. This is a parallelism that we find here in this type, in this particular type of poetry. Okay? Now, there are only two pictures in this psalm. It doesn't give us a lot of options. Um, and you either fall into one of these two categories. You fall into the blessed category or the non-blessed category. There's really not any distinction uh, any other way but those two. And it's about two paths. And these two paths do not lead to the same place. You know the song, I'll take the high road and you'll take the low road and I'll be in Scotland. Scotland? Scotland before ye, ye, that's my Scottish, um, it doesn't work this way. You want to take the high road here in Psalm 1 and I'll take the low road, I'm going to be in heaven and you won't be in heaven, okay? That is just, it, we're not going to the same place. It is very clear in this psalm, there's the man who meditates upon and delights in the law of the Lord and he will know blessedness and there is the one who does not and the one who knows blessedness stands before the Lord and the one that does not does not stand before the Lord. What's it say towards the end there? Uh, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. We'll see in a minute. They don't have a leg to stand on when they get to the judgment. Okay. Now chaff, uh, 
In, in uh, Old Testament times, if you wanted to harvest grain, you went to the threshing floor when it was harvested and you put it up on a threshing floor which was built up on a hill usually because the wind blew up there on the hills. You take this big sledge and you drive over the grain that you had just harvested and it would kind of crush it out. Then you take the big winnowing forks and you throw everything up in the air and the wind would come and the chaff which was light as a feather and really useless except to be burnt would be blown away and the grain would fall. And that's the illustration that we get here when it talks about chaff. It's useless. It's only good for being burned up in the fire. That's the only purpose it has. So in here you will find two ways, blessing or cursing. Not uncommon in Scripture, uh, especially in the Old Testament model. It says very clearly, if my people who are called according to my purposes will humble themselves and pray, then I will bless them. The people who don't, they don't get a blessing. They don't follow the way of the Lord. They do not understand those things. We see this carried over into the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of that great Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, all of that, we find that there are models of two. You have two gates, two roads, two trees, two types of fruit, two houses, two foundations. One is good, one is bad. There seems to be no other option but those two things. So the way of the, way of the righteous is not described by associates but by one who delights in certain things. Delight is to more, is to, is more in, in language, linguistically speaking. You know, I love to study history. Okay? I delight in history. I delight in a lot of things. I delight in chocolate. I, you know, I delight in, in the great outdoors and things like that. It's not the same here. It's that explanation is not sufficient to uh, describe this. When we delight in God's law, we are actually delighting in God himself. Okay? They are not drawing a distinction between here's the word and here's God. If you delight in God's word, you delight in God himself. Okay? And this delight is an indication of someone who has had a changed life. Romans chapter 8 says, For the mind that it is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot if your life has not been changed, if your heart has not been changed by the work of Christ, you cannot delight in the law of God. You might read it, you might think that's really neat, but you cannot delight upon the law of God. So delighting in the law and the word of God is really the central issue here. Now the, it begins with the word blessed. How blessed is the man? Um, happy is not a good substitute. Um, Excited is not the good substitute. Is uh, the Hebrew conveys the word of peace and contentment as well as joy, and really the word, because of the tense of the the Hebrew here, it's it's a plural. It's a plural intensive. So what that really means, it talks about the blessings of the Lord, and really it's like blessednesses which is a word I just have made up recently, blessednesses. Okay, so there's the blessedness, but this word is the plural of that and intensive, so it's even more so, so it's blessednesses. Okay, Spurgeon says, it is secretly known whether the word is an adjective or a noun as if, these bless, as if the blessedness qualified for the whole life. So, so really, in the sense here, what they're saying is that the blessednesses of the Lord are actually better than life itself. 
the blessednesses of the Lord is actually better than life itself. Now, I realize if you say that to somebody, even most believers whose lives are falling apart, they really don't appreciate that. Okay? It takes a very mature believer to understand that the blessednesses of what they're going through, if they are walking in the path of the Lord, whatever they may be, is better than life itself. Okay? Better than life itself. So the blessednesses of the Lord do not discriminate. It says here, blessed is the man. Again, Charles Spurgeon, he says, Observe, too, that he does not hold any eminent position. It is not blessed is the king, or blessed is the scholar, or blessed is the rich, but blessed is the man. And that's the generic term for anybody there. This blessedness is as attainable by the poor, the forgotten, the obscure, as by those whose names figure in history and are trumpeted by fame. It is not the hermit who lives alone, but to the workman toiling amongst his fellows. Not to the man who wears a surplus and assumes the exclusive title of priest, but it comes to any man in Fustian, Fustian would be denim, something like that, or corduroy, who loves God and seeks to obey him. His position has nothing to do with it. His character has everything to do with it. He is a man and nothing but a man, but grace makes him much more. There is in the psalm, however, one word which truly describes this man, and that is this, that he is a righteous man. Observe the last verse, the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. The balance of this man's nature has been readjusted by the divine scale maker. He was once all out of gear, but but put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, but now his judgment is rectified, and in spirit and character he is a righteous man. Once he was naked and defiled, but he has been washed in the fountain filled with blood and clothed with the righteousness of Christ, a garment glittering with gold and silver threads, and all by faith. Now why does the psalmist begin this way in verse 1? Why not just say to us, Don't be wicked. Don't sin. Don't scoff. Wouldn't that be straightforward and easy? I mean, we kind of like that. we got our bullet points and the things I need to do, and here are things I don't need to do. Why draw attention to the wicked and the sinner and the scoffer? Why focus on where we look for influence? Okay? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, path of the sinner, seat of the scoffer. See, the reason is that contrast is not between wicked and righteousness. It is, be, it is a contrast between being influenced in one place or being influenced in a different place or by a whole different group of people. You are shaped in one way or you are shaped in another way. Your thinking and your feeling is shaped either by the wicked or your thinking and your feeling is shaped by God. Again, it's an issue of the will. Where will you spend your time? What will you fill your mind with? All right, Rand, how can I discern the counsel of the wicked? I mean, where do I go? Uh, I have to live out in the world every day. I I involve myself with all kinds of people. How can I determine the, the counsel of what is described here as the wicked? Well, if you want, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. There are five ways, and I've just gathered them through a variety of sources here, that we can tell the counsel of the wicked. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
First and foremost, the counsel of the wicked denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay? Oh, we don't need that. That's outdated. Uh, why do you read that stuff? Okay? Number one, the counsel of the wicked denies the sufficiency of Scripture. And it denies it for dealings with problems of the soul. No, the Scripture does not help me solve the calculus problem. Okay? But it does solve the problems of my soul. Okay, let me read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And you'll notice that those good works have been prepared for us from before the foundations of the earth, that we should walk in them according to the faith that God has given to us, and we live it out. So the counsel of the wicked denies the sufficiency of Scripture, denies that the, Bible, the claims of the Bible that we are, it is adequate to deal with these things as it says right here. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Number two, the counsel of the wicked exalts the pride of man and wants to give glory to man. Okay? Now, the Bible is very different from that. The Bible says, humble yourself, and if you humble yourself, what will happen? God will exalt you. If you exalt yourself, what will happen? God will humble you. It's very clear there. Okay? 1 Corinthians says, let him who boasts, boast where? Boast in the Lord. Okay? The world's wisdom builds up the self, minimizes the need for the absolute truths of God's word. Number three, the counsel of the wicked denies or minimizes the need for the cross. Minimizes or denies the need for the cross. It asserts the basic goodness of the individual. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. See, this is the basis for so much in our society that we are inherently and basically good. There's this thought of the inherent goodness of mankind. Okay? Well... Gee, if you still get a newspaper, all you have to do is open the newspaper or go online and just read some and you find that man is pretty nasty. We do very nasty things to one another. Yes, there are some great things that are done, but man left to himself will really pursue his own ends and his own goals at the cost of everyone else around him. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 There is, no, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Does anybody, anybody feeling good about this passage so far? Okay. Because it says none and all. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their paths. And the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This does really not make us look very good. Okay? But such is the description of man outside of Christ, outside of redemption. Left to our own nature, this is what happens. It says no one's righteous. Nobody seeks God. Why don't we seek God? Because in our own sinfulness, we don't want God. I'd rather have me as my God than our Creator. 
Okay? The counsel of the wicked denies or minimizes the need for the cross by saying that man is basically good. Number four, the counsel of the wicked denies God's moral absolutes and substitutes our own view of what is good and right. Okay, God is absolutely righteous, and his standards of holiness are made clear to us in his word. That's why he says, meditate on, delight in these things. Our call to be holy is based upon whose holiness? Upon his holiness. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And number five, the counsel of the wicked focuses on pleasing self rather than pleasing God. Okay? The world's wisdom does not promote self-denial, promote self-indulgence. But Scripture says what? Take up your cross and follow me whenever you want. Right? Oh, follow me when? Daily. Daily. Often the world's wisdom provides help for a person, relief from the symptoms. Scripture provides the cure. Go back to Psalm 1. Scoffers. Do not sit in the seat of scoffers. What's a scoffer? Usually a scoffer is somebody who has been, let's say, inoculated with enough religion that they know they don't like it. And they kind of go over there and they lob the scoffing bombs in at the church. They really don't understand it. They're backward. Um, they want to be their own God. They, they don't want any limits put upon their own behavior or their own desires and lifestyles. Okay, That's what a scoffer does. The church is too repressive. The things of Christ uh, are outmoded. Um, they don't want God interfering in their lives. They want to be their own God. Okay, Now... Take note here, how happy is the person who does not sit in the seat of the scoffers? This is the person that by necessity there, the scoffer is not happy. Okay? It's like the junior high kids who have to pick on one and put that person down so that I feel better about myself. The scoffer looks at the things of Christ and I have to put those things down because I need to feel better about myself. But for them, it really is a losing battle. They're scoffing at the truth, and they're finding themselves further and further into error. Okay? Verse 2, but, then this is the good stuff. We found out what not to be. Now we find out what we are to be. To delight in the law of the Lord. Now, this word in the Hebrew is used in Genesis, and it is used in Esther in a very particular way. It is used of a young man's delight in a beautiful woman. Okay? Now just think about that for a second. It is not a lustful delight, but it is the type of delight where the young man rearranges his schedule and his priorities so that he might spend time with this woman. Okay? Now you think about, guys, back in your dating days, you, you, you had busy life, but there was this girl that you were just uh, all goobery over, okay? And you were delighting in her, and you were 
ready to readjust your schedule just to be with her. Maybe you were at college and, and um, you knew where she went between classes, so you adjusted your schedule so you could get over there and just happened to be on that sidewalk where she walked by. You went, oh, hi, how are you doing? You had your, your 30 seconds of conversation and then went on. Okay, And it was a delight for you to do so. That is the concept that we get here in our call to delight in the word of the Lord. That we will willingly adjust our schedules so that we might be with the Lord. Okay, it's, it's different from, um, you know, well, I've got to grind through a chapter in my personal devotions because a chapter a day keeps the devil away. And, and I just got, I've got to do this. And it soothes my guilt that, okay, I read, I cranked through, okay, now I can go on with the rest of my day. No, it's, it's how... Can I adjust this schedule so that I can be here? How can I structure the rest of my life so that I can spend more time in God's holy word? Okay, This is the delight that he talks about. Not only is it a delight to be in God's word and to read God's word, but to meditate upon it. Meditate is to reading as digestion is to eating. Meditation is to reading as digestion is to eating. It gets inside of you. It dwells within you. It fills you up. It nourishes you. I mean, you can read a passage and just crank right through it, but this meditation is I'm reading it. I'm letting it fill my mind. I'm contemplating on it. So, long, so often we will see that word selah in the scripture. Think on these things. That's what it is talking about. Okay? Nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of duty. Nobody says, well, I've got to go out and sin my fullness today, so I better go out and hang out with my wicked friends. They do it by decision of the will. Okay? We want to be over there in the sinful world because we've watched it and we've looked at it and we've thought, well, that's not too bad. There are some good things over there. I mean, look, look at that guy's doing pretty well. He doesn't live like I do. He, he lives all for himself, but look how well he is doing in the midst of that. Okay, we have been watching them and we've been watching them intently. Now it becomes attractive to us. We have meditated upon the sinfulness of their actions and their lives, and and now we delight in that. Well, Scripture says you've got to meditate here, and you've got to delight here. That's why the contrast in verse 2 is not duty and obedience, but delight and meditation. The point is that the only hope against the pleasures of the world are the pleasures of the Word. The only hope against the pleasures of the world are the pleasures of the Word. Here, the pleasures of the world are awakened in a regenerate soul. We look at them long enough. We look at them day and night. That's what the Psalms are designed to do, to inform our thinking about the way that delights the hearts of men and women. Look at verse 3. Just, just one thing, we're kind of picking and choosing here. Look at the end of verse 3. And whatever he does, he prospers. And what does this mean? 
Does it mean that if you delight in the word of God and meditate upon it night and day, your business will be more profitable, your health will be perfect and everything like that? There'll be no car accidents in your house, nobody will come and and rob your house. Um, Well, when you delight in God's word instead of walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of the the sinners and sitting in the seat of the scoffers, you will be doing the kinds of things that God blesses the kinds of things that God approves of. And when you are delighting in the word, you are trusting in it, and we know that God works for those who trust in him and rely upon him. And now, there's plenty of reasons in Scripture and in life in general that we see that God does not spare even the faithful, even the people that meditate upon his word. There are afflictions that come upon the righteous. There are accidents that come upon believers, and, and, and we've looked at those before. Um, you know, but the author of Psalm 1 really has a longer-term view in mind. And that's how we get to the last couple verses. The wicked are not so, verse 4, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked perishes. The wicked perish. That's not really the view of man. If you look at society, the wicked don't always seem like they're rootless, like they are weightless or useless. They appear to have a very uh, important role within our society. Um, uh, You know, if you look at television, let's face it, outside of the guys on Duck Dynasty, there aren't many beautiful, successful Christians. I'm talking about... Their wives on Duck Dynasty, not the guys, okay, in the beautiful part, okay? But God's view is a long-term view. God's view goes all the way to judgment. Those who leave me out of their lives are like chaff. The wind blows them away. They're only good to be burnt and destroyed. They have no substance. They may sound and look and give every indication of possessing joy, but they do not know what they lack because they do not know Christ. Remember the passage we read from Romans. The heart that has not been transformed by the Lord can't understand these things. Only the heart that has been changed by Christ understands. You don't know what you're missing until you get Christ. And when you get Christ, you look back and say, how did I not see this all all this life before. When they get before the Lord, they won't have a leg to stand on. Okay? The wicked will not stand in judgment. Literally, it means they will not have an argument to give before the Lord as to why they should enter into his presence. No argument at all. No reason, no ability to say anything positive. Because they will not have known Christ. They will not have meditated upon his word and delighted in the Lord. They won't be in heaven with those who have been made righteous through faith in Christ. Even though they may look at times like they are successful, the Lord says in eternity they've got nothing. Now, isn't this a cop-out? That's a cop-out. I mean, I can sit here and say, you know what? Those people over there are successful, but in the end, I'm going to heaven, and they're not, okay? I know they're driving a Porsche, and everything seems to be good in their life, but 
my dividends are what? They're eternal. <laughs> well, it's fact. Okay? That doesn't mean that I wouldn't like to drive the Porsche, but it also means that the Lord has made these promises, and these promises are based upon His character and upon the way that He acts and upon the way that He has acted from the beginning of humanity and the way that He will act until the judgment of Christ. This is not a cop-out. It's the plain teachings of God's Word. It's appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews chapter 9. We all have to stand before the Lord. If you take God out of the picture of eternity, all you are is an accident. You're a random convergence of innate particles that came together and somehow formed life. Unless there is a God, a God who knows all that you are, a God who formed you in your mother's womb, a God in, in whose mind you have never been outside of in all eternity. See, many people want to enter the way of the godly, but they want to do so on their own terms and by their own standards. And he says, you have to enter the way according to God's standards, according to the way that he set, and according to his means. His means are confession of sin, repentance, faith, and belief upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So let's pray. Lord, first you tell us the person who does this is not blessed. But the person who meditates on and delights in your word, that person is blessed. That person knows their sin and knows the means of salvation. They know what you like and what you don't like. They know the call upon our hearts to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That all that we are and all that we do and all that we say and all that we think belongs to you and is to be lived out for your glory. These things are not cop-outs. They're not for the weak. Living the Christian life can be very difficult. But yet, the power and the strength to do it is always available to us. And here's this wrestling that goes on with inside of us, Lord. I want my will, and I want your will, and, and whose will is going to win out today? And some days, Lord, we all know that our own will wins out some days. But when we come to our senses and we seek you, we find how sweet these things are, how merciful you are, how forgiving you are. We think to ourselves, and why didn't I just give in and, and follow what the Lord wanted from me? Lord, we aren't perfect, but you knew that before you sent your son to give his life for us. You knew our weaknesses, our shallowness, but yet your mercy and grace covers those sins, even to the extent that we might come right to the throne of grace with our very lives. Heavenly Father, we come today, we pray that our eyes would be open to the things of Christ that our love for your word, our delight in your word would fill us, that we might be able to consume it and live it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.